name is Kurt. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, happy birthday. I cannot help but be excited and surprised because uh, my parents, uh, Bill and Sandra Nothelfer, who live in San Diego, have been able to join us for worship because we are now worshiping online, which is really cool, right? But today is my mom's birthday, too. So, Mom, if you're out there watching today, happy 80th birthday today. We celebrate with you. Milestone for my mom, and so it's great to be able to worship together with you, with everyone else watching from home, and of course with all of you, brothers and sisters in Christ's family here at church on this fine Sunday morning. We are in our series in Ephesians, Life is Calling, and we are being encouraged to remember that even in difficult times, life continues to call us to focus on what's most important, to remember that God is good and that there is a, a plan and a purpose for our lives. And in that sense, the title of our series is really kind of a, a double entendre. It's a, a phrase with two meanings, because not only is life calling us forward even in this season, but for the Christian, we're also learning from this book of Ephesians that life is that we are created by God on purpose, and we are created by God for a purpose. And when we understand and begin to discover the calling and unique purpose of our lives, that God has revealed and is revealing in Christ, everything else begins to make sense and fall into place according to God's plan and purposes, which is to bless us and to make us to be a blessing to those around us. In the first half of the letter to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is developing kind of a multi-layered explanation of this good news message of Jesus. And why it is that we need to always remember that when Jesus shows up, everything changes. Let's say that together. Well, I'll say the first part, you say the second part. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. When Jesus shows up, Now, Paul has not yet begun to give us insight on how to live out these lives of calling and purpose, but that's where he's going to get to in the second half of the letter. Right now, he's continuing to help us establish an understanding of this new reality that exists in Christ, so that we can begin to reframe our thinking about who God is, our relationship with God, who we are in God's world, and what God has called us to do. And as a result of that re reframing of our thinking, we begin to reprioritize the meaning and the value of our lives and our relationships. In doing so, Paul is essentially guiding us through the answers to the core questions of life that, as human beings, we all struggle to seek and find through the purpose of our lives. Where am I? Who am I? What, what's the problem? What's wrong with life in this world, and, and what's the solution if there is one? See, these core worldview questions correspond to the core life searches that we're all journeying through as well. We've talked about this in this series, that in life we are all searching for community, for identity, and for meaning. In community, we ask questions like, where do I come from? Who, who do I belong to? What, what community is my community of people? In identity, we ask, who am I? What, what makes me uniquely me? And in meaning, we ask, what value do I have? What am I good for? 
And what we see in the letter to the Ephesians is that Paul takes a clearly Trinitarian approach to answering these core questions of life purpose. That God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all intimately involved in our experience of discovering the purpose of our lives in and through our relationship with God. They work in harmony together, each playing a role in the fulfillment of these core life searches. And Paul picks up this teaching today in verse 11 of chapter 2, where we're going to read verses 11 through 22. He begins by saying, therefore. Now, again, we're going to pause right there. Whenever Paul says, therefore, <laughs> right, this is that multi-layered explanation. you got to go back and remember everything that he just said. And if you were with us last week, you know that Pastor Jeff uh, masterfully led us through the, the beginning of chapter 2, where we learned that, that because of everything I just said, Paul, Paul is saying, because God has revealed himself to be a God of love and a God of mercy, and a God of grace. Because of all of these things, in fact, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, he said, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, therefore, because of all of that, because we remember where we were with apart from God, and before we experience God's grace, and we remember all of the blessings that we have received from God in Christ because of His love and His grace. Therefore, because of all of that, he says in verse 11, remember that you formerly who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at a time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, don't skip over that, but now, right? Now, in this present moment, in this time, because Jesus is alive, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. Jesus shows up. Oh, you guys let me down. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. That's what Paul keeps reminding us over and over again. And Paul's saying here there are, there are two experiences of life in this world. Life that is lived far from God and life that is lived near to God. And we have to be really careful because we might be mistaken our position in life. We can think that we're living near to God when nothing could be further from the truth. See, one of the things Paul, as a good Jewish believer himself, is wanting us to realize is that we can mistake proximity for nearness. What do I mean by that? One is measured in physical distance. The other is measured in relational. See, that's just kind of what he's talking about by these phrases. When he talks about uh, Gentiles by birth and circumcision in the flesh, he's actually using the same phrase. It's ensarki, or in the flesh. And ensarks, or flesh, for Paul, he didn't mean just our physical flesh. He, he meant the frailty of human life 
apart from God's power and presence. Life apart from God is life in the flesh. It's life without the Spirit of Christ. It's life without the power and presence of God at work. It's life without hope and without meaning and without value in the world. And we can mistakenly think that because we are coming physically close to God's house, to God's presence, to God's activity, to God's ministry, that somehow that makes us close to God, when in reality, nothing might be further from the truth. And we should be humbled, and and, and, and our, our attitude should be brought to awareness when we were reminded that Jesus talked to his disciples and said, even at the end of time, when, when it comes to the final judgment, some people are going to come and say, but... But Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. But Jesus, we went to church every Sunday. But Jesus, we tied 10% of our income. And he's going to say, what? But I never knew you. You see, what we see in Paul and we see throughout Scripture is that Christianity is not a religion of religious rituals and duties that we check off the list in order to get our brownie points and earn our way to heaven. Christianity is a relationship with God in Jesus Christ that he invites us to experience the presence and power of God, which when that happens, everything changes. The problem is you can be a Christian for your whole life and never experience the kind of transforming relationship that God has invited us to experience in our lives. And the problem for both Jews and for Gentiles, Paul is saying, is that without even realizing it, they can be living their lives in the flesh. They can be trying to do it all apart from God. Even when we're doing the things that we think are for God or because of God, it's not the physical proximity that is the problem. It's the problem of relational nearness that we need to wrap our heads around. Life apart from God, in contrast to life in Christ and life in the Spirit, is the difference. Now, as Gentiles, these believers were living their lives apart from God and His grace before they were adopted into God's family. And as a result of, of being apart from God's uh, people, they were being badmouthed by the Jewish believers, right? That, oh, they're the uncircumcision, we're the circumcision. Where one is a, it was, is a comment or a label of disdain, and the other one's a label of pride, that somehow we, we're, we're the in crowd and you're the out crowd, Right? We matter to God, and you're just a bunch of heathen, no good, you know, sinners. We never have those kinds of attitudes as Christians, though, do we? You see, those who didn't belong to God's covenant and God's promise were, were thought to be somehow spiritually less than in God's eyes. They weren't valued as equally as those who were in the in crowd. And we can go back and you can look at the history of the Jewish people in the Gentile world and understand that their mutual disdain for one another is well attested throughout the centuries. But Paul says here that even the circumcision in which they boasted was merely a, a human action when it was done apart from God's plan and God's purpose, which he is now saying was to reveal himself as the God of mercy and love and grace in Jesus. And that even they too can be living their lives in the flesh and apart from God because God's plan was not for Gentile believers to become Jewish believers, but for all of them to become Christian believers in Christ. 
So we too have to be careful as we approach our religious thinking and our own religiosity because sometimes certainty can breed condescension. Let me say that again. Sometimes certainty can breed condescension. See, when we lack the humility that comes from truly understanding that we are saved only by grace. We can become prideful in our certainty of knowing truth, and we end up using truth and wielding it as a weapon. We have to be careful of labels and name-calling, and because these are the ways of separating ourselves from one another. And men and women, if you can't spend five minutes looking at what's going on in our culture and the level of labeling and name-calling and condescension towards our fellow human brothers and sisters, you don't understand how much the devil is at work in the midst of everything that's happening in our culture today. And we as Christians have an opportunity to speak into that in the name of Christ that we're not going to sink to that level. That we can rise above the condescension that comes from our own certainty of knowing that our way is the right way and we've got the truth and there's so we're going to wield it as a weapon and tell you that, that you're just a no good, heathen, uncircumcised sinner because you're not in the in crowd. The gospel message of Jesus calls everyone to humility before the cross to say we are all sinners saved by grace and therefore we need to love each other Is it possible for us as Christians today to have a baptism in the flesh? Which is done in the body by human hands, but has no relational nearness to God that transforms our lives. Because men and women, when Jesus shows up, So to avoid this problem, to avoid this risk for the people that Paul is writing to in verse 12, he describes five aspects in which the Gentiles were formerly deprived or disconnected or distant from God and how that, now that has all changed. He says, remember at that time you were separate from Christ versus now you are found in Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You weren't a part of God's plan and God's purpose to create a people for himself to, to help carry out his plan in the world. You were foreigners to the covenants and to the promise. And if you remember the story of Abraham, who was the father of faith, who was called to leave his people to go to a nation that God would show him in God's covenant, God's promise that he would bless him so that he could be a blessing and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. You are foreigners to this covenant and these promises, to this sense of life purpose that God had called you for something greater than your own self-serving ambitions and appetites, and therefore you were without hope. You didn't have the assurance that God's plan was going to come to fulfillment, and that in the end, salvation was guaranteed, and so you didn't have to worry about life or death, but you could trust your whole life to God, and therefore you were living life in the flesh, apart from God. And yet, we also see the flesh becomes the source of God's solution, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. In 
Jesus, in the, the God who became flesh so that he could become one of us, so that he could be our representative on the cross to take away the sin and to bring us back into relationship with God. That, that phrase, by the blood of Christ, is a, is a phrase to remind us of everything that Jesus has accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection. By Jesus' death in, in his own flesh, he has destroyed the barrier of hostility between God and people and between humanity together. It's the blood of Christ. It's the sacrifice and the example of God's love and his grace that is revealed to us on the cross of Christ that becomes our beacon for how to live our lives in relationship with one another. Because of God's love, Christ died for us and in our place in order to reunite humanity with God and even more importantly, to break down the dividing walls of hostility that continue to happen in the human family. We understand, right, that it was always understood among the Hebrew people that the Gentiles, the rest of the world outside the chosen people, were included in God's plan from eternity past, right? That was, you can go through the Old Testament, you can see that the Gentiles were always on God's heart. But, but for the Jewish people, it was always kind of as a, a secondary priority. Right? It, was be, it was kind of a byproduct that we could assume would happen if we just stay focused on being good Jews and living the law and keeping ourselves pure. Does that begin to sound anything like maybe how we approach our own faith today? In what ways do we assume that making disciples of all nations is, of course, part of God's plan for eternity, but it's kind of a secondary purpose for why we come to church? In what ways in, in Christ does the secondary become revealed to be the primary, just as it did in Jesus' day? In this sense, what, what might be missing in our thinking, in our our, our worldview about why church exists and why we come to church and how we should be investing our time, our talents, and our treasure. And, and, and how is this missing our own understanding of our own purpose in God's calling for our lives? If God's solution to separation and estrangement due to sin is to bring people near relationally, what might that suggest about how we might begin to pursue our own life purpose? reality is, I'd like to suggest that we experience separation and estrangement and distance, sometimes even from the people that we live closest to. In our own marriages, in our own churches, in our own workplaces, we can spend time and hours and energy physically close to people who we become more and more distant from, who we become more and more estranged from, who we don't feel near to. And, and, and that's part of the problem, that a, a sense of hostility begins to grow between us, and we don't know how to overcome that barrier and to get back to the nearness that God invites us to experience. 
See, the biggest problem in all of this, Paul is telling us, is that estrangement that we have from those around us, whether it's in our own families, between parents and children, whether it's an estrangement uh, between political parties or an estrangement between people of different skin colors, or it's an estrangement of people who wave a different national flag, it all starts with our estrangement from our Heavenly Father. And when we live our lives apart from God and estranged from the God who created us and the God who loves us and the God who knows us and the God who has revealed himself to show us what love looks like, when we live apart from that God, how can we hope to mend the brokenness of the sinfulness of the evilness of our humanity when we try and live in relationship with each other? It doesn't work. And so our own brokenness, our own relational difficulties are signs and symptoms of the brokenness of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And the two go hand in hand. And if you want to fix the one, you've got to start by fixing the other. You see, the human condition, Paul is telling us, is caused first and foremost by our separation from God. And that's what sin does. It separates us from our Heavenly Father. Life comes from God and is designed to be enjoyed in His presence. Therefore, there's only one solution to get us back on track and to solve this plight, and that is to draw near to God. But men and women, the good news is we can draw near to God. Why? Because He's already drawn near to you. That's the gospel message. That's what Jesus came to do, to draw near to us. Even in our trespasses and sin, God, because of His love, sent His Son forgive our sin and to bring us back in relationship to Himself. Christ is the one who draws us back into nearness with Him. That's why He says in verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father. See, this idea of peace, we, we've talked about this here at Faith Covenant Church before, but, but all the way back in the Old Testament, the word shalom was, was a symbol of the healing and the wholeness and the restoration that God had planned to bring to His creation. Right? So we know that peace and shalom is a part of this good news message that God had planned from before the creation of the world to have a solution to the problem of human sin and brokenness. See, peace is what God wills for us to experience in our life with Him. But here, peace is also a term of community. It's a relational term. Peace with God leads to peace with each other. Paul says that the, the law, the religious code, the expectations for how to live as a good uh, Jewish person was often referred to as an iron wall surrounding Israel and a, a fence separating them from others. And those were, were positive terms. There was actually a physical barrier that became enacted in the creation of the temple in Jerusalem. 
Ancient historians Josephus and Philo describe a barrier in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Israelites. And there was a wall of separation. And signs were put up that if you were a Gentile, you should go no further under the penalty of death. And we know that Paul, in Acts 21, was arrested in Jerusalem because he has taken an Ephesian named Trophimus into the restricted area of the temple. See, see, Paul's using a very real physical wall in the lives of these ancient Jewish and Christian believers to illustrate this larger theological point that he's talking about. There was a physical wall in the temple of God that separated these two types of people from one another as an example of a real division that's caused by the law and as a symbol of how the law became a tool of division and how we can use our religiosity and our claim to the truth to divide us from one another rather than to draw us together. Now, the law was a uh, part of the original intention of the law was to create separation, to, to call out a people, to set them apart, to make them unique, and, and to, to make them stand alone. But the distinctions based on the law also led to this sense of arrogance and condescension and name-calling. And so what scholars suggest Paul is saying here is he's not abolishing the law as the word of God or as a moral guide, what he's abolishing is the law as a set of regulations that excludes Gentile believers. Paul won't tolerate a practice of religion that excludes people or forces Gentiles to become Jews in order to believe that they too have a relationship with Jesus. And the destruction of this barrier takes place in Christ's flesh where the two the wall disappears when the two are united into one body, which is the body of Christ. You see, God's solution to life in the flesh is to bring his love and his grace in the flesh. In Jesus, God took on the hostility of both Jews and Gentiles into himself, and when he died, it died. In Christ Jesus himself, he creates a new creation, a new type of human being. In the resurrection, we see that, that, that there's a new beginning for human interaction and relationships in Christ. Grace becomes the connective tissue of our unity with God and our unity with one another. Grace becomes the connective tissue in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. How much you today need to exercise a little more grace in the relationships that you have with people. I know I do. How easy is it for us in our own certainty that, that we have it right and that our way is the best way for us to get condescending with the people that we love the most and to talk down to one another and to talk at one another and to forget that we're called to express grace for one another as a sign that we too have received grace. And why do we struggle to make grace a priority in our lives in the church when we have differences and we have conflicts? Why are we so quick to draw lines and to say that my way is the right way and you're not thinking like I think and you have to, to, to change your way rather than coming and saying, how do we love each other through this and as a result grow together? Isn't that the way that Christ has invited us to understand that we have become part of the same body? 
When Jesus says, love one another as you love yourself, I think he's talking about not like you love yourself, but as if they are you. Because we're a part of one another. And we forget to show grace to one another and and use God's grace for us as the, the love that we have to give. We're missing the point of why he's given us grace to begin with, is to be bearers of that grace to each other. And we struggle to do that with the people that we're closest to. How are we going to do that with people that aren't even like us? And that don't like us? And yet those are the very people that God has also called us to love. Amen? You see, what Paul says is the result of finding reconciliation through the connective tissue of grace in our relationships is that in those relationships we discover discover access to God in loving relationship with other human beings. Yeah, you can discover God in a, in a sanctuary on Sunday morning, but the Bible is very clear is that the Spirit of God in me and the Spirit of God in you is what draws us together. And as we offer each other the connective tissue of grace and love, what we do is we experience the presence and power of God to transform our lives in relationship. And if we're not pursuing those kinds of relationships and and building those kinds of relationships and understanding that those relationships are available for us to experience God, we're missing a whole part of why God has called us to be a part of His family. That's why in verse 13 he goes on to say, Consequently, big word, underline, circle, star, consequently, because of this, I'm getting to my main point here. Paul's saying, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. created because of the love and grace of Christ that are now his bearers of grace and love to a lost and dying world. If you want to find God in a way that begins to transform your life and creates the connective tissue of grace that brings reconciliation and wholeness to the relationships of your lives, you got to start with church. you got to start with God's people. you got to start You've been adopted and born into a new family. You've been invited to experience a new kind of community. You've been given a new identity, a new personality in Jesus. And the transforming and the meaning of purpose in your life from one of hopelessness and godlessness to a life of purpose and value that that is helping to lead to God's fulfillment at the end of all time, a life in which God lives and a life in which God moves and a life in which God chooses to reveal himself to other people. This is is a, a life calling. 
This is the, the, the reason why God created you to begin with that was, that was lost in the fall, but God has restored through His Son Jesus and invites us to experience today. Like a house that's built on a, on a sure foundation. The teaching and the testimony of the apostles and the prophets are, are a sure foundation. This is a phrase that, that might get lost in this today, but what are they talking about? They're talking about the Bible. Right? Isn't that what the Bible is? It's we've, we've captured the teachings of, of the apostles and the prophets, those who were with Jesus, those who were, were telling the good news, and it's been recorded and captured so that we can, too, today, learn from this solid foundation upon which we can build our lives because of the same good news that is true for you and for me today as it was all those years ago. With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Do you have a cornerstone in your life? See, the cornerstone was, was the foundation stone. It wasn't just for decoration. It wasn't something where they just stamped, you know, found in 1789, and, you know, here was the architect, and it wasn't just there for looks and beauty. The foundation stone in ancient architecture was the key stone upon which the rest of the house either rose or fell. It, it created the foundation and the lines that determined how the rest of the house would be built. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone, is the, is the one who makes the whole building possible, including even the rest of the foundation. It's built on Him, and it exists in Him. In Him, the building is bound together, and it grows to become not only a house, but a spiritual house, a temple in the world. To be a place where God dwells by His Spirit, a place where God chooses to make His home. You see, in a new way, God's people are becoming God's temple. Not just the originally chosen people, but all people together are now able to be included. The ones formerly kept out of the temple are now themselves part of the temple itself. In Christ and through the Spirit of God, with His people, we experience the presence and the power of God at work in our lives and we are built together into a spiritual house where God lives by His Spirit. And so that is the place that we go if you want to experience God. We go to God's people. See, Jesus is intended to be the cornerstone of our lives. Life in Christ is relational life. It's all about relationships. Our relationship with God in Christ and our relationships with one another as a result of our being in Christ and spending time investing our lives, building these kinds of intentional relationships is the whole point of God's calling us to be church. And if we're not intentionally building these kinds of relationships, we're not involved in building the temple. We're not involved in seeking God's presence. We're not involved in experiencing the presence of God in the ways that God has invited us to experience. In order to discover and live out the purpose of your life and the purpose of my life, we have to understand that Jesus must become the cornerstone of our lives, the foundation stone and the point around which every other aspect of our lives begins to be joined together and to be built with integrity and wholeness so that the shalom of God becomes a part of our experience of life in this world, and it's all dependent on making sure Jesus is the cornerstone upon which everything else is built. 
Jesus was never intended to be a secondary byproduct of, oh yeah, I'll add Jesus into a compartment of my life. Because if Jesus isn't the, the foundation stone, the cornerstone, the central point upon which you build the rest of your life, you're just living in a house of cards. Because when the storms come and the winds blow and the rains fall, right, the person who builds their house on the sand is not going to stand. That's why Jesus said it's the person who builds their house on the rock that will have a life that will stand, that will have a life of purpose, that will have a life that can weather all the ups and downs and challenges. Like Jesus is the rock. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone. And if we build our lives on him, you won't. Be disappointed. Jesus becomes the definer of our lives and our relationships. Jesus becomes the definer of what community is supposed to be. Jesus becomes the definer of how we use our identity and our personality to make a difference in the world. Jesus becomes the definer of our meaning and our value and the work that we have to give and what difference we can make. And if we are not going to the foundation stone and building all of those things on Him, we're going to be searching for a whole lot of things that we are always left disappointed. And ultimately in this, Paul is reminding us that if life is calling and you want to discover your life purpose, Jesus becomes the definer of the purpose of your life. All of life then becomes the pathway on which we live out God's calling to be set apart for His purposes, which we have been learning in Ephesians, is to reveal His love and His grace through you to others. And the gift is that we can experience it along the way. It's a win-win. So how do the spiritual blessings that we learned about in chapter 1 and this new reality of life in Christ actually begin to manifest themselves in the world in real and tangible ways? What's the practical application of all this Christian gobbledygook? Right? Look around the room. They're sitting right next to you. They're waiting for you at home. You work next to them every day. It's a kind word. It's a word of encouragement. It's an invitation into relationship. It's a, hey, would you like to meet and help each other grow in our faith? Hey, have you heard about the good news of Jesus? I'd love to share it with you because it changed my life. The application of Christian faith in the Bible is present everywhere we go, every moment of the day, every restaurant that you eat in, every grocery store that you uh, shop in, every walk that you take around the neighborhood, every neighbor's dog that you pet while they talk to you while they're holding the leash is the kingdom of God in your face. God has a plan for my life. I don't know what God would want me to do. Look around. Look around. Jesus said, the person who is faithful with a little bit will be faithful. And the person who is faithful with being given will be given much. And what better joy will we have at the end of our days when we come into the presence of our Lord and Savior to hear the words, well, your life wisely. Enter into the joy that you've been asking for. 
Then when it's not how much you've been given, it's how you've used what you've got. And the practical application of all of this is simply to love others with grace and mercy and thus reveal God's presence and power in our lives. It's so simple that we make it so hard. Men and women, there is a temple that is in the process of being built where you can go and you can worship God and you can experience God and you can see the presence and the power of God at work. And that temple is going to continue to be built until the end of time. And God's presence is there. And that temple is God's people. And the doors are wide open and we can enter in at any moment at any time. I believe that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, I'm going to close with his words and not mine. Are the peacemakers, for they will be called men and women. He himself is our peace. May we too become children of peace. Holy God, we do thank you. Your mercy and your grace is more than we need. It's more than we can handle. It overflows in our lives. Forgive us for the ways that we we take your grace cheaply and don't allow it to humble us in a way that transforms our hearts to be people of grace and peace in our own relationships with one another and to share that peace and that grace with the world around us. God, here at Faith Covenant Church, I pray that you would give us the courage to to recognize that, that we have been invited to build relationships that matter. And as we focus on relationships as as what it means to be church, would you give us an insight on how you want to empower us and grow us and allow our ministry to be a ministry of your deep plan and purposes to reveal your love to a lost and dying world. It's in Jesus' name we pray.